At the end of the day, it's a very silly show. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Welcome to the Gospel of Musical Theater. Today we have Rumbaskin and Tumble Brutus coming to you from the heavy side lair. Do you want to, Peter? Do you want to be Grumbaskin or do you want to be Tumble Brutus? Uh, I think I want to be Grizabella, really. <laughs> don't but we, who doesn't? Well, you know? yeah. Do you or don't you want to be Grizabella? She's had, uh, okay, she's had okay. a hard life, but yeah. I'm all, increasingly old Deuteronomy. I think I that's say, uh, yeah. Gus, in three years of retirement, Gus you know, the it's old Deuteronomy was, time. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. There, there, oh, Gus the theater cat. Uh huh. He was there as he was kind of looking back on his. I thought, oh, I I think I might age into something, some version of Gus the theater cat. The theater is certainly not what it was. I, these young kittens today, they they do not get trained. I resonated. <laughs> with some of that <laughs> these modern productions so we're looking at cats today continuing our series of andrew lloyd weber the sung through musical if you don't if you've been under a rock or i can't imagine a musical theater lover not at least knowing cats although um i will tell the story of my nephew benjamin uh who's an actor he's a musician and actor and then got into musical theater because and he's a professional uh actor now but his wife told him about cats. He had never encountered it. He was born in 1984. Uh, so it, he sort of culturally escaped it. And when he, she was telling him about cats, he got completely freaked out <laughs> by the notion of actors dressing up like cats, uh -huh. dancing on a stage and singing. And he said, and, and, and what's the plot? She said, well, there really isn't a there really isn't a plot so much. It doesn't have a okay, so let me get it right. So you've got actors on a stage, they're dressed like cats, they're singing and dancing for two hours, there's no particular plot, and yet it's one of the most successful musicals in the history of both Broadway and the West End of London, and indeed of the world. Yeah. Yep. Has played 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 I think every continent except for Antarctica. Yeah, cats is a global phenomenon. And one of the things we might kind of lay on the table as conceptualizing kind of where this thing comes from, really the first, I think, blockbuster mega musical, right? Yes, I, I exactly. Really kind of inaugurated the the great sort of 80s, early 90s Broadway tradition. Of, of Andrew Lloyd Webber is sort of one of the major promulgators, you know, Les Mis, Phantom of the Opera, Miss Saigon, but Cats got there first. A big yep. spectacle show that could be, I mean, just, and, there's, and there's a sort of capitalist commercialist component of this, right? Cats can be uh, easily repackaged and shipped, if you like. Actors are yes. kind of interchangeable to a certain degree. I mean, like that that diminishes the incredible dancing and and singing that happens in the company of cats. It is it is, but in some ways, cats is a chorus line with cats exploded to a spectacle a spectacle degree, right? So um, a kind of worldwide phenomenon that can be done all over the world. I mean, one of the things we, that we want to think about, like to a certain degree, culturally translatable, culturally malleable, which is so interesting to me because the show at one level is so quintessentially British, but is a global phenomenon, I think because of the world that it creates. The, the level of spectacle, um, the, the sort of immersive, you're, you're, you, you had a dinner conversation with a friend, you were talking about the immersive spectacle of Cats, which I think yes. is, is really key to its success. You don't really have to know anything about Cats, musicals, T.S. Eliot, rock music. I mean, anything, you can walk into Cats, there's not really a story to follow, 
and there is some this kind of incredible dance world that is created. Um, yes. It has made a ton of money and has become a huge success. And it's based on a, a series of poems designed for children by the famous uh, British-American poet uh, T.S. Eliot, for whom I have a particular affection, um, even though he spelled his last name wrong in our <laughs> yes, humble opinion, did. the two L's, two T's people. And Lloyd Webber began writing it in 1977 as a way to see if he could take already written lyrics and set them to music. By now, his association with Tim Rice has ended substantially. They will re-collaborate a bit later. And so he's really trying a new form, and he begins doing it as a song cycle, and then brings director uh, Trevor Nunn, uh, English director Trevor Nunn, onto the scene, and they begin to imagine it as a immersive theatrical experience. So it uh, it hits the West End of London in about 1981, with a, a soundtrack released almost simultaneously and goes on to become, as we've said, the fourth longest running Broadway show. That may have changed a bit uh, since uh, our research is done, but it's clearly up with some of the big shows of all time. And the seventh longest West End show and ac across, as you say, across the world and so forth. So... The character that they focus on is Grizabella, the glamour cat. It's the premier role. Um, it was, uh, I think it was Miss Elaine Page in the London premiere of it. I can't remember who all has played Grizabella in on Broadway. Um, Betty Buckley on in the in the Broadway Company, and I think she, I okay. think she won the Tony Award for okay. um, for for Grizabella, and then. Uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of other great. So I mean, yeah, Cats is uh, probably best known for Memory, which is its eleven o'clock number, and and probably the I think probably Andrew Lloyd Webber's most successful song. That Memory really and the lyrics a, are not by T. S. Eliot, right? The what? Well, yeah, sort of inspired and loosely lifted, inspired, but yeah, 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 not 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 a not not Eliot lyrics per se. I think I think they're Trevor Nunn lyrics actually. I think Trevor Nunn sort of did a pastiche version of a bunch of Eliot poems. And kind of pulled them together into memory, but yeah, I mean, became I mean that 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 melody was ubiquitous when I was growing up. I mean, it was in music boxes. It was I, I he I I think Andrew Weber's fortune is largely thanks to memory. Well, thanks to the fact that he basically mortgaged himself to produce Cats, and it was mostly his money. Um, a show that should probably not have succeeded would have bankrupted him if it had not. But instead, I think made him a fortune, um, a and fortune. and a lot of that I think is memory. Memory has really become the um, the big moment in Cats, for sure. Yeah. And I, it it came out in, I think the album came out around 1981. I remember it well. I was a curate uh, at the cathedral in Hamilton, Ontario, Steeltown, the Pittsburgh of the North, if you want to sort of get a picture of what Hamilton, Ontario is like. And I bought, because I now was making money as opposed to being a student where you're broke all the time, I bought a Skookum uh, stereo system, like a really good turntable for vinyl and great speakers and that sort of stuff and bought the the cats album and the logo of cats is worth just mentioning the original title of it was going to be practical cats and then they gave this notion how do we sell this show and what came out were these sort of amber eyes with rather than pupils if you look at it very carefully it's a it's a dancer it's a dancing cat as it were 
black, just the amber eyes, uh, white on black. So visually very arresting and, you know, put the needle on my Sansui Skookum stereo. And this music came out through the speakers. And Andrew Lloyd Webber has always been absolutely obsessed about the production of sound. He has had more than one temper tantrum at a venue where he doesn't think the sound is right. And so his attention to that and the the stereophonic equipment that was out these days, and I was hooked immediately. In fact, even when I listen to it today, it transports me back to that time of my life and what I was dealing with in all sorts of all sorts of ways. And the songs, not surprisingly, and very characteristically of Andrew Lloyd Webber, are complete earworms. They get in your brain. More than earworms, they're bops. I mean, I think I think Cats is a very successful score. I don't think it's a particularly sophisticated score, but it's an the the, the songs are well done. And maybe that's because, you know, like you, right? I mean, I remember listening to Cats when I was a kid dancing around the living room with my sister. I mean, it's it's infectious. There's interesting syncopate. It's great dance music. I mean, it's a dance show in so many ways. You see why apparently they gave the, they gave the story to Twyla Tharp. They wanted Twyla Tharp to choreograph it and she hated it. But then Gillian Lynch picked it up um, and made, you know, like those songs demand a great cast of dancers. I mean, I think that, that opening number, Jellicle Cats, right? With that, you know, like there's, it starts in this kind of interesting way. The org, I, actually, I think the um, the overture to Cats is a really interesting piece do, do, of, do. yeah, exactly. I mean, it really sets up this world, right? Of like, it's, you know, it's it's midnight, it, you know, it's the, the film, you know, tries to capture this, right? This kind of darkened street with rolling cans all over the place and the cats kind of start coming out of hiding and then they begin to dance. You see this in the um, the film version of the Broadway, of the, of the stage production, right? Like the infectious, and it's chorus line, right? Like this is, this yes. is a core, this is a dance show. They're in, you know, the actors are in some version of like Jane Fonda workout gear, um, so it's, you know, like, they're not, they're cat-like, but they're dancers. I mean, this is a show about dancers, I think. It's a show about, I mean, actually, it's one of the ways I don't want to think about um, about cats is, you know, like, w- w- at the peril of, you know, making too much of, of the material, um, what, like, what what are jellicle cats? When you fall on your head, do you land on your feet? Are you tense when you sense there's a storm in the air? Can you find your way blind when you're lost in the street? Do you know how to go to the heavy side layer? Because jellicles can and jellicles do. Jellicles do and jellicles can. Jellicles can and jellicles do. Jellicles do and jellicles can. Jellicles can and jellicles do. Can you ride on a broomstick to places far distant? Familiar with candles, with book and with bell. Were you Whittington's friend? The Pied Piper's assistant. Have you been in a longness of heaven and hell? Are you mean like a minx? Are you mean like a lynx? Are you keen to be seen when you're smelling a rat? Were you there when the pharaohs commissioned the sphinx? If you were and you are, you're a jellico cat. Jellico songs for jellico cats. 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 We can
one of the ways that I want to think about the show is it's about the theater. This is a show about, it's like a chorus line. This is about dancers. They're all going to now then, they're, as they do in chorus line, they're going to tell you their story. Um, but at the end of the day, what, what wins is we are Jellicle cats. You know, we, we are part of this company. And to be a Jellicle cat is to have, you know, it's to have an identity. It's to have belonging in community. Um, the show, and, and so a lot of the show is spent like understanding what is the nature of cats, which I think we could, we could say is kind of like understanding the nature of the company or the nature of a community or, you know, like this is about uh, belonging. I think it's about home. So cats becomes a really interesting stand and in, I think thematically for, uh, I mean, certainly like a, a sort of a theatrical read, but any, any community um, that has, you know, individuality, but also a sense of kind of group identity uh, and and, and one, one of the ways that we could think about cats, I think, is cats is about church, right? Like it's it's about uh, how how a community forms, how individuals find their place in community, what happen, how how communities other, right? I think Grizabella then becomes a really important uh, avatar for the the one that is sort of cast out of community, but then finds redemption and belonging back in community. So that lots of layers, I think, of uh, what 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 a jellical cat is a you know can be a stand-in for. Although I'm I'm always cognizant of you know the early backers audition when Andrew Lloyd Webber was playing the score for Hal Prince, the the famous director, and of course Hal Prince, you know what British politicians are you satirizing? Like who's Margaret Thatcher in this thing, and who's you know? And Andrew Lloyd Webber said, Hal, Hal, Hal. It's about cats. Like there's it's about <laughs> cats. There's no part of why I think this show <laughs> really that. succeeds is there really? I mean, you know, you can pull it apart and do all kinds of interesting theological analysis, which I'm sure we will do. At the end of the day, it's a very silly show with very silly children's kind of you know uh, tongue in cheek kind of whimsical lyrics. It's about cats. It's not trying to be. Uh, it's not trying to say anything. And I actually I think. Cat succeeds best when there is this sense of fun and silliness. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And the audience can just have a good time without needing to think about, you know, political, thematic over over resonances and overtures. It's just a it's just a fun show. Well, and kudos to Andrew Lloyd Webber for doing that, because that's what the source material is. Yeah. These are nonsense poems for kids that are designed by T.S. Eliot, arguably one of the great poets of the 20th century. And he very consciously was using the rhythm, the cadence of, of poetry nursery that rhymes. children can yeah. learn. Nursery rhymes, exactly. And for the most part, Andrew Lloyd Webber keeps that intact. And the cadence of the nursery rhyme, its rhythmic quality is what allows it to become a great vehicle for dance because of its uh, pentameter. It's it's regularity, which dancers, I mean, dancers can dance to anything, but give them a give them a rhythmic structure, a tune as a kind of ground, and they they know how to move their bodies. Their choreographer can then work from there. But there's that whole first. So there's Jellicle cats, and then there's the naming of cats. Mm -hmm. That weird kind of incantation spell. Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. the incantation. Which which leads to, and it is without, and I uh, I, I want to stay playful and not get heavy, the go to the heavy side layer, uh, get heavy <laughs> theologically, but it goes to the names of the cats and the name that that cannot be named. Yeah, 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 yeah. The F and ineffable, the ineffability of the cat's identity. Is a difficult matter. It isn't just one of your holiday games. You may think at first I'm as mad as a hatter when I tell you a cat must have three different names. First, it 
First of all, there's the name that the family used daily, such as Peter, Augustus, Alonzo, or James, such as Victor, or Jonathan, George, or Leo Bailey. All of them sensible, everyday names. There are fancier names, if you think they sound sweeter. Some for the gentlemen, some for the dames, such as Plato, Admetus, Electra, Demeter, but all of them sensible, everyday names. But I tell you, a cat means a name that's particular, a name that's peculiar, and more dignified. Else how can he keep up his tail perpendicular, or spread out his whiskers, or cherish his pride? Of names of this kind, I can give you a quorum, such as monkey strap, cracker, or corridor pat, such as bombardurina, or else jelly lorum. Names that never belong to more than one cat. But above and beyond, there's still one name left over, and that is the name that you never will guess. The name that no human research can discover, but the cat himself knows and will never confess. When you notice a cat in profound meditation, the reason I tell you is always the same. His mind is engaged in a rapt contemplation of the thought, of the thought, of the thought, of his name, his inevitable, Michael. That takes me in two directions. One is, of course, from Hebrew scripture, the name of God uh, in Hebrew scripture cannot be named. It's consonants. Uh, when when Moses at the burning bush says uh, to the divine, who shall I say sent me? When the divine says, go uh, lead my people a liberation out of slavery. And uh, God says, my name is I, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be or the name that cannot be uttered. This kind of essence, very essence of being itself, is how Hebrew scripture understands the divine. And in Christians, because of Jesus, we get very comfortable with naming God. But to name is to control. That's my. That's the point. And, and that the cat, and you have cats, and I lived with cats for a certain period of my life. And anyone who lives with a cat. I was going to say owns a cat, but nobody owns a cat. Nobody owns a cat. Yeah, you live with a cat. You live with a cat. The cat has an identity that is all of its own. And you have, as opposed to a dog who you can train, a cat, you have to learn how to share space with. You learn about the cat. The cat's identity is kind of ineffable, kind of like Kind of like God, or kind of is like that God. Too much? Yeah, no, I think that I, I wanted to talk about this too because the, the naming of cats is, I mean, laying out what's almost a theological idea. I mean, you know, here we, as you say, anybody who owns a cat will know what, what Elliot identifies is so feline that there's the name that the family uses, which the cat could care less about, right? Doesn't even recognize. Then there's there's the name that the cat only only one cat can have. 
you know, and this is this is the, the Jellicle names, right? Mungo Jerry and Rumple Teaser and Grizzabella and Grumbuskin and Tumble Brutus. I mean, they're all kind of. Uh, but but I think the idea here is that like that that belongs to only that one cat, and I, my sense is only the other Jellicle cats know that name. The family humans will never we don't we don't know that name. By coming into the theater, we are getting this sort of privileged view into the way that cats are among themselves, which as people we will never really see. But then they say there's actually this name that only, and this is where it does feel theological to me. I almost feels like revelation right where it's like in the last day god's gonna write you know your your own name on a white stone i think i mean this this is a, a weird part of revelation i'm not even quite sure what it means but one of the ways that christian tradition has handed it down is this idea that i have a name that you have a name that only god knows right like there is an identity that our, our worlds cannot control our jobs cannot control our families will never know that we actually don't even ourselves know except maybe catch these echoes of you know in these moments of um profound belonging or, or being seen but this idea that god god knows my real name if you like mm. and the cats are maybe one step ahead of humans in that like they you know they, they go to the heavy side layer when they do, when they die cats already know their name they have this sort of sense of autonomy as you say no one can you can't you can't control a cat you can't train a cat you can't really own a cat uh, it belongs to itself it belongs to god we might say and there is and there's that that name that only the cat knows and so when you see a cat like you know completely self-control that's sort of sphinx-like you know sitting in the sun with its eyes closed like that's what elliot says is it is sitting there contemplating its ineffable name which at one level, like that feels so feline, but also what a beautiful theological idea about the power of names and control and who really knows us ultimately. I think that's a really interesting um, Well, piece. yeah, theological but, and, and spiritual, the, the spirituality of identity. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think in, in our culture, in culture right now, North American culture, claiming identity, and I think that's hugely important and I, I am filled with gratitude for pioneers of uh people who are expressing their 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 known gender identity which may not have been the gender identity assigned at birth or in uh in canadian culture i think in u.s culture as well a lot of indigeneity uh folks who have some indigenous roots are beginning to claim uh that part of identity certainly uh, uh gay lesbian folks uh this is uh, cultural diversity. This is huge, and and thank God for it. And is there an identity below, even below, all of the ways that we identify in the world, gender, culture, so forth? And I think this is what Christian spirituality or all spirituality is seeking to get down to the 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 core identity that, of course, everything else expresses from. But that deep sense of who we are before God, I guess, yeah. who we yeah. are in our essence, in the depth of our souls and everything else is part of that. But the ineffability of the name that cannot be named, the identity that is below. And I think a lot of, a lot of spiritual paths are about wanting to take us, take me, take you, take any of us to that mysterious place within and and I think the the naming of cats begins to get at god obviously felines but also something about human identity and spirituality yeah i think that's right and and part of what i like about the way that cats conceptualizes it is 
there is a kind of privileging of that ineffable name, but doesn't discount then the name that the family uses. And then more to the point, like the whole show is about the names that the Jellicles use among themselves. So saying, yeah. yes, there is this, there is a name that only that cat will ever know. And you will never know that cat's name. That cat will never reveal that secret part of it. But there is a way in which cats are together and they use these names for one another and that has beauty and power and meaning you actually can learn a lot about cats from the ways that they interact with one another in this jellical community and the ways that they are socially with humans is also a part of that um you know we're not we're not dismissing those other identities right like all of the ways in right. which we walk through the world our gender our sexual orientation our race like all the ways in which you know i think about identity politics right the ways in which we as you say are much more conscious of intersectionality right now and all the different ways in which i show up in the world all of that is not that's not wrong bad or a distraction from the identity that only God knows, it's a piece of who I am. And and is it's a piece, I'm, I, I want to say like a piece of my baptismal identity. All of, all of that makes up the whole. And then as you say, there is also this piece of me that I may not even really be conscious of, but it's the, you know, it's what I, what I imagine the, you know, the face that I will receive when I stand before my maker, the name that I will be given uh, when I, you know, like when I finally give up the ghost and I'm standing before Christ in glory, um, this part of me that I catch glimpses of, but that really is lodged in God. And that I yeah. only get these kind of, you know, glimpses of. Well, and I think all the identity pieces that we go through in our lives, and you and I have both had journeys as gay men, I think the more we claim our identity, the closer we get to that ineffable yes. essence, yeah. right? Yeah, they're connected. Uh, they're not different. They're connected, yeah. 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 And some of it is stripping away, just kind of like cats do. I'm not going to, you know, for you, for you with Mungo and Timmy, I'm not going to be the cat that Nathan wants me to be, I'm going to be the cat that I, that I am. <laughs> that I am. Yeah. And you know that as a cat cohabitor, they express themselves. I mean, the interesting thing for us, my first partner, Daniel, may he rest in peace, um, when we had a, a house full of cats, and we literally had a house full of cats, because uh, uh, we, were, we were having a breeding program for them. Oh, they were having the fun of it. <laughs> and so at the peak when there were kittens around, uh, at our peak, we had 30 cats in the house, which when I look back on it now was just stupid and bizarre. <laughs> uh, it was way too many. But the You were literally having a jellical ball. We were having a jellical ball. But the fascinating thing about uh, living with kittens was each kitten, and they were all Burmans, uh, uh, so they kind of all looked alike, but each kitten was completely distinctive and had its own personality within sort of two weeks that, because uh, people would all, you know, they'd come in the house and there were these cats running around that all looked alike. And they were astonished that I was able to know who was who. The extraordinary identity that cats, that the feline, you know, and I mean, there's also the, the sure knowledge that Whereas a, when you, when, if we died in the presence of our pet dog, the pet dog would snuggle. Mm -hmm. If we died in the presence of our pet cat. They would eat your face. <laughs> they would eat our face. <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> They'd don't be fine. Care. They'd, They'd be, be fine. fine. Yeah. They'd be fine. They would neither miss you nor necessarily regret your absence. They might, they might regret when you didn't feed them. There is a. Yeah, some of that. Yeah. Which, which so the, the there's show this identity, yeah. this uniqueness of yeah. of the animals, and I think cats really does celebrate that. And and we get a great a great image of sort of unbridled, 
unashamed sexuality <laughs> with Rum Tum Tugger oh, pretty man. much well, right not just, off the yeah, bat. Right off the bat. I mean, all of them. And this is, I mean, this is one of my uh, beefs with the with the film, which we don't have to go too far into, which I think desex- tries to desexualize these cats. I mean, Jillian, Jillian Lynn, the, the choreographer, was, was pretty famous for saying like, oh, no, this whole thing is about sex. Like these are actually a friend of mine refers to cats as a bunch of horny cats competing to see who's going to die. I mean, basically, that's the show, right? They are all just a bunch of hornballs. But yeah, Rum Tug Tugger is really where we we see the that at kind of its most um, <laughs> its most uh, crotch thrusty, raw and uh, and un, unvarnished. If you offer me pheasant, I'd rather have grouse. If you put me in a house, I would much prefer a flat. If you put me in a flat, then I'd rather have a house. If you set me on a mouse, then I only want a rat. If you set me on a rat, then I'd rather chase a mouse. Sit. And there isn't any need for me to shout it. anything about it. The is a terrible bore. Oh, will you let me in? Then I want to go out. I'm always on the wrong side of every door. As soon as I'm at home, then I like to get about. I like to lie in the bureau such a fuss if I can't get out. The Rum Tum Tugger is a curious cat. And there isn't any need for you to doubt it. For he will do as he did. And there's no doing anything about it. My disobliging ways are a matter of a habit. If you offer me fish, then I always want to feast. When there isn't any fish, then I want to eat rat. If you offer me cream, then I sniff and sniff. For I only like what I find for myself. You know, putting it right near the top of the show, um, just from a showbiz, Broadway, West End London, and now, you know, everywhere jolt. So if the audience has dozed off, which audiences do through overtures and often through first numbers, nobody in the theater it sleeps through Rum Tum Tugger. No, it's, uh, uh, it's and a, it's the a, actors well who done. play it yeah. when it's well done. The actors who play it just convey mm-hmm. sexuality in all of its uh, anarchy and beauty yeah. and energy and thrust mm-hmm. although the song is i mean it's i think yeah that's what andrew Lloyd weber is almost doing i think a kind of a mick jagger pastiche i think that's kind of how that, that's what that's what's in the imagination a little bit in this number but the 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 elliot poem i mean describes a cat that i know well and i'm sure you do too right the, who like you know always want always on the wrong side of every door when you yeah. when you when you nestling in the nestling in the um the drawer but then jumps right out again i mean never satisfied i only like what i find for myself right like you yeah. cannot please this cat 
So is that, a, I mean, like, I think they've made that into a, a kind of a number about a kind of, you know, a sexy rock star cat who all the little female kittens are, you know, wanting him to, it's, it's almost a, like, th- they're like throwing their panties at him, basically. Um, <laughs> but there is a, so one of the ways I want to think about at, at, the, at the risk of um, over, over conceptualizing material that ought not to be over conceptualized, um, I think it is interesting to think about these opening numbers, right, where you've got these cats kind of introducing themselves to the audience almost as a kind of morality player. I mean, I, I think that's kind of how Tom Hooper, the director of the film, conceives of cats, right? He, he says it's kind of like a medieval morality play, which at one level, I think, is why the film is so humorless and so bad is because he's trying to, you know, that's his unified field theory of cats, and it's kind of a, a dull one. But it is interesting theologically to think about, um, I mean, I, I, in some ways, I do think that the the predilections of cats that, that Elliot is laying out do kind of a little bit map onto the seven deadly sins in a really kind of interesting way. There is a little bit of a, of a sense of a morality tale. So, I mean, like, who is Rum Tum Tugger, right? I mean, like, is he just kind of unbridled sexuality? Or is, I mean, is he kind of, um, is this like exercising, is this, is this about fickleness? Is this about incon- mm. inconstancy? Um, is this about like a cat who can never be, never be pleased? I guess I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the kind of sexuality that Rum Tum Tugger is about, because I think at one level, it really is about, um, I mean, you know, like if I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to go too far down this road, but I think this is about like lust in the, in the, in the yeah. broadest sense, right? Like I am never satisfied. I can never be satisfied, which is where desire, which is a holy thing, a beautiful thing, uh, in the, in the Christian tradition kind of skates over into a passion or a, you know something that cannot be controlled something we might call a seven deadly sin i i want to be really careful with lust as a sin but in the medieval tradition right there is this idea that it's not and it's not just about sexuality right like it is a uh you know it is a kind of uh a, a lack of, an inability to be satisfied um is kind of identified yeah. in the christian tradition as kind of being central to this this sin or this passion that keeps us from god um is that what rum tum tugger is is about is is it about the cat that can really not be domesticated, yeah. that cannot fit in with the norms of the household. You know, if if I if I want to be out, then I want to be in, and all those kind of kind of things. And I think for lots of us, that's how lust is. Uh, and I think it's the it's the problem with uh, a spirituality that seeks to make lust absolutely a uh, an unpardonable sin. In my experience, you cannot domesticate lust. It it refuses to be domesticated and is powerful in ways way beyond uh, human uh, human control. And the cat is kind of an interesting image of an undomesticated drive passion spirit, right? Um, because they they cannot be when and just to go back to my bizarre days of uh, husbanding cats, you know, the boys, uh, the the whole male cats, uncastrated male cats, which we had three, only desired one thing all the time. So howling like this was a bit of a problem. The girls cycled in and out of heat. When the, when the, when the female cats were in heat, that was very clear. But then they had periods where they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> other other keys in which they could operate in. <laughs> yes. Males, not so much. Yeah. It was constant. And I, I think that's some of the feline. And T.S. Eliot, remember, was a cat guy. He had cats. He knew cats. He lived with cats. And anyone who's lived with a whole male for even a short period of time knows how obsessive the 
lust to mate is the that power of and I, so I think Rum Tum Tucker is getting a bit at, at tapping that into as some well. of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. There is a, yeah. there is. A, I mean, yeah, that the you know the, the the line at the end that Old Deuteronomy will turn to the audience and say, "We we hope now you you have the view that cats are very much like you." And I think there is a way in which we're you know T. S. Eliot, Andrew Lloyd Webber, like are looking at the world of felines. You know, through a through a human, you know, through a through a human, you know, I, I, almost a sort of anthropol. I'm, what's the what's the fallacy there? You know, when you sort of ascribe human emotions to a non-human anthropomorphism. Yeah, I mean, like some of that, I think. Eh, eh. But it is an interesting exercise, isn't it, to look at a creature that does not have the um, the social norms, the uh, the id and the ego control that human brains have. You're just seeing raw animal motivation in a in a tomcat who has not been neutered. And I think you're right. I think that is what I mean. In some ways. You know, here again, I, you know, is, is there a, is there a message here? And I, I want to steer clear of any messaging. But when you when you when you strip Rum Tum Tugger of any sort of Christian veneer around uh, virtues and vices, it's just an animal doing what an animal does. In the exactly. same way that you know, like I think you and I can recognize, yeah, there is something about human lustfulness too. That when we when we take a when we take a step away from kind of traditional Christian morality uh, policing, it is just a very there's a very there's a physicality. To, yes. uh, to to what cats show us about what it is to be human that that is actually actually I think worth kind of thinking about. Um, yeah, I, I think I it's worth thinking about, and I think the the enterprise of the church for centuries, which was to police and seek to control human sexuality and its expression. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there was some good part of that around procreation and limiting the patriarch's privilege to, frankly, fuck anything, anybody they wanted to. And so putting limits around that. So that's all good. And it's ultimately, if that becomes the primary purpose of religion, and I think in a lot of the Christian way, it has been a kind of primary instinct to control lust and human energy. It's not going to work fully Mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. And, And I think a lot of the debates of the last 25 years in within Anglicanism around place of gay lesbian people. And now I think the recognition of, of queer people in all sorts of expressions has opened up a new way of being that I think is quite wonderful. And we're still navigating our way through, I think, this with the history of Christian morality around lust and so forth, yeah, still still navigating our way through that. Yeah, but in some ways, cats is—I mean, maybe this is putting pushing this too far—but almost seeking to redeem what we would consider maybe the seven deadly sins or some version of that, right? If we look at if we look at the human human taboos through the lens of feline behavior, they see they're a lot less threatening. Uh, we can we can understand. I mean, I think about all the all the cats to a certain degree are exhibiting some kind of you know some kind of deadly. Sudden, I mean, Bustopher Jones just wants to eat. I mean, like he's sort of the classic yeah. sin of gluttony. Um, I guess I guess. Uh, Jenny Annie Dots is a cedia, you know, like she's just sitting there all day until at night when she comes alive and is, you know, organizing the Beatles into a into a dance routine. But I, I think there, you know, the, the sin is like she just sits and sits and sits and sits, and that's what makes a Gumby cat. Um, which is, I mean, like it almost feels to me like a riff on sloth, you know, from the kind yeah, of medieval morality tradition. But right, but but not but not condemning her for it, right? Like that's who she was made to be. Like that is who she is. She sits and sits and sits and sits, and that's what makes a Gumby cat. But when the day's hustle and bustle is done, then she's right. Like at night, she is alive. She is bouncing off the walls. I mean, I have a cat like that, right? Who sits all day, and then as soon as the sun goes down, he goes crazy. He is a Jenny Any Dots. 
I have a Gumby cat in mind. Her name is Jenny Any Dots. Her coat is of the tabby kind with tiger stripes and leopard spots. All day she sits beneath the stairs or on the steps or on the mat. She sits and sits and sits and sits. And that's what makes a Gumby cat. That's what makes a Gumby cat. But when the day's hustle and bustle is done, then the Gumby cat's work is but hardly begun. And when all the family's in bed and asleep, she tucks up her skirts to the basement to creep. She's deeply concerned with the ways of the mice. Their behavior's not good, and the manner's not when she has got them lined up on the matting, she teaches them music, crocheting, and tatting. And that, uh, in my my mind, it goes to the the in the best schools these days. The wonderful ways they're, that teachers and schools are are, are incorporating neurodiverse students, yeah. as opposed to uh, you know I'm I'm ancient, so when I was growing up, complete uh, exclusion, erasure own schools, that sort of stuff. Now there seems to be a way to accommodate different intelligences, just like Jenny Anydots. I mean, yeah. just because you're sitting around all day looking straight ahead does not necessarily mean that you're either not thinking or you're not going to be productive, maybe not at a time in terms of ceridian rhythms that other cats are being active, but it's a different way of being. And the acceptance of that and inclusion of that but who's old Deuteronomy, Nathan? Well, who is old Deuteronomy? I mean, yeah, <laughs> Judy Dench in the film, famously, which I think is an interesting little bit of casting. I mean, you and I are, we, we will often talk about the priest of a show, right? I think it's one of the things that we, we kind of look for in Broadway yeah. structure. Who is the, who is the, who is the officiant? Who is the celebrant? If, if, the, if all theater is a little bit of a liturgy, which I think it is, and all liturgy is theater, um, who is the presiding officer of this show? And often it's, I mean, Roger and Hammerstein, it's usually the mezzo-soprano who gets to sing the hymn. I think Old Deuteronomy is the priest of the, um, is the priest of the thing, right? That there's this community yeah. that's being formed. And by virtue of, you know, I guess by virtue of the fact that he's been around for, for, I mean, he even gets the most ecclesiastical name. And actually the text really ties him to church, right? Like Old Deuteronomy's lived a long time. He sits by the, I think they say that he sits by the vicarage wall or something like, I mean, he's connected to um, the 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 parson he's connected to the vicarage the village all you know respects him in his prime uh, when he shows up everybody's kind of astounded of all things can it be really oh yes oh hi oh my eye my mind may be wandering but I confess I believe it is old Deuteronomy like we didn't think he was going to show up he shows up pretty rarely but when he does something something is happening and that you know he shows up for the Jellicle ball to make the Jellicle choice I mean if there's a plot to this thing it's you know which cat's going to get to be reborn in the heavyside layer. So he, I mean, he actually has a liturgical function. His job, I think, yeah. is to uh, usher usher one of the cats into the into the afterlife or into reincarnation or whatever we think the heaviside layer is meant to be. So there is a sort of ceremonial role that Old Deuteronomy plays. Yeah, he's an he's an interesting character. He or she. He's kind of know. he's kind of Saint Michael ferrying the dead yeah. across the river um, to the to the promised land, the heaviside layer, if that's what the heaviside layer is. Yeah. Old Deuteronomy's lived a long time He's a cat who has lived many lives in succession 
He was famous in proverb and famous in rhyme. A long while before Queen Victoria's accession, old Deuteronomy's buried nine wives, and more I am tempted to say, ninety-nine and his numerous progeny prospers and thrives, and the village is proud of him in his decline. At the sight of that placid and bland physiognomy, when he sits in the sun on the vicarage wall, the oldest inhabitant croaks, well of all things, can it be And kind of speaks of the the church, as you said, in some ways, this venerable, uh, I think particularly about the Church of England now, and my, my experience there uh, in the grand old cathedrals, you know, yeah. they're just kind of there, and they just speak antiquity and tradition and uh, history with all of its good, bad, and ugliness. I was um, going to say, I mean, there, there's nothing, I mean, there, and, at one way, there's nothing more frustrating than being consigned to being an old Deuteronomy. I mean, you know, like, yeah. dusty, old, venerable. I mean, in some ways, like, what a, what a, what a, especially in a show that is so much about unbridled sexuality and dance and fun, to then be consigned to the role of the venerable priest, while all right. the other cats are <clears throat> dancing around and basically screwing each other. <laughs> um, I mean, he's he's connected to. I mean, but he is though. He's connected. I mean, he's connected to Queen Victoria. Right? I'm, I'm just looking at the at the Eliot poem here. Right? He's a cat who has lived many lives in succession. Famous in proverb. Famous in rhyme. A long time before Queen Victoria's accession. He's buried nine wives. More. I'm tempted to say ninety nine. So he's like he's been he's been a tomcat, but he's not anymore. He's been the a village tom-cat. is proud of him in his decline. At the sight of that placid and bland physiognomy, when he sits in the sun on the vicarage wall, the oldest inhabitants croaks. Well, of all things, well, can it of be? all things, can my it mind be really? may be wandering. Yeah, I mean, he he sits in High Street on Market Day. He's connected to village life in the poem, right? I mean, this is very much like the village, the village green, the village parish. Um, he is. I think he. I think you're right. I think he is like the. He's the Church of England in that kind of the country parson sort of way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like antiquated has no place really in modern life, and yet we all think very affectionately of him when he shows up. I mean, is that is that the role that the church is doomed to play in this society? A kind of affectionate, you know, like... Is that the role? Yeah, I think, I mean, especially in the, in the Northwest where we've kind of moved beyond, um, you know, the church is, you know, it's a problem, it's bad, it must be taken down. My sense is now it's like the church is kind of a, a figure of sort of benign neglect, you know? Like, oh, isn't that, isn't that quaint? Isn't that sweet? Fine for dotting old ladies. And I might actually want to show up on a Christmas Eve every once in a while for a sort of nostalgia trip. But there's nothing, there's nothing there that has vitality or energy or, um, I mean, maybe, that, maybe that's being unfair to Old Deuteronomy, because I think Old Deuteronomy actually does have some vitality and energy. But the way that the, the Eliot poet characterizes this cat um, is a little, not dismissive, but God, what a, 
what a depressing place to end up. Yeah. Where you're just kind of thought of affectionately when you are thought of at all. When you're thought of at all, yeah. And and I think you're right about the way people regard. I I, I think the the place of the church in the postmodern digital age is isn't it isn't it kind of lovely mm-hmm. that it's there? Yeah. Um, well, of all things, can it be really <laughs> really you know, they're still doing really this? there? Oh, it is. Yes. Well, oh, yes, hi, no. a, you know, my mind oh, may be wandering, eye, you know, but I confess, uh, I think they're walking down that aisle with a candle investment. They're like, walking down all the aisle things. Yeah. Of all, can it be really? I mean, the one the one thing that I think does redeem this rather dark picture that I'm painting of is the way that that song functions in the musical, right? Where it kind of builds and builds. I mean, it's a weird chorus. Well, of all things, can it be really? Oh, yes. Oh, hi. I'm like, what do those words even mean? It's such, but like the way that that musically builds and builds until finally Deuteronomy makes his entrance, right? Theatrically, yeah. that is a moment that gives me chills almost yeah. every time when this, you know, it's, it's Ken Page in the, um, in the filmed, in the 1998 filmed version. It's Judy Dench in the, um, the whatever that is, 2020 film, you know, almost always a venerable, uh, a venerable actor who is a little past their prime, maybe, but striding, on, owning that stage while the cast kind of, you know, the chorus swells. It's beautiful music. And then you see them all kind of like, you know, you coming up, you know, pay, bowing down, kind of paying. I mean, there is this sort of um, exalted quality to that moment on stage that is different to me than the sort of almost half-dismissive, affectionate, consolidating you to the dustbin sense that I think Odunarami can sometimes have. What it's making me think of is um, the one time when I was a kid um, when I saw Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth in person. And I had been cynical as kids in the 60s and 70s would be about monarchy and royalty. And uh, she and Prince Philip had been uh, at the opening of a a theater in Niagara-on-the-Lake and were on a, a train back to Toronto through our hometown. And they were standing at least in my memory, on the back car of the train with lights on them, sort of waving as they went through. And so we went down to the train station with our family, and I was gobsmacked. I mean, well, of all things, you know, here she was with, with, with Philip, you know, and I was so prepared to be underwhelmed and of course, the royalty is staged always. It's there. It, it's produced, and they produced it brilliantly. And I was overcome with with tears and, you know, just enormous emotion, unexpectedly. You know, and then off she went into the night. It was it was like perfect. It was cinematic. And then I think of the adulation that surrounded her death, almost the funeral of a hero, a heroine. The deep, deep uh, emotion, not the unbridled grief that was expressed when Diana was tragically killed in the car accident, but a a deep sort of reverence. And I think, uh, this is my point, the church has become kind of that in postmodern North American life. It looked at with some reverence and some awe and deep feeling but not engaged by it and willing to move on, as I think Britain probably is, and certainly the countries of the Commonwealth are, there's a lot of constitutional stuff to to sort out about about all this. And I'm not sure, (laughs) you know, all due respect to my dear American brother here, 
you know, right now, the United States nor France are particularly attractive pictures <laughs> of what Republican life looks say, like. D- Democratic republics are not uh, not enticing you with their success rates uh, in any no. in any sort of way. Oh, and yeah. and I think similarly, the Christian way now that at least in the liberal tradition, we've jettisoned some of the seeking to control human sexuality. Some of it, I think, some of it is still still very deeply rooted in the in the Christian way. But there can be some f- uh, fresh expressions. I don't mean the formal church term, but I think there can be some fresh expressions. And I guess here's my point. There's nothing wrong with old Deuteronomy. In fact, yeah, no, I think yeah. that's right. Yeah, there's something there's something beautiful, maybe, about mm-hmm. a figure that has been around for so long and to a certain degree is is venerable, venerable primarily because of age. I think, you know, I think Queen Elizabeth was venerable for all kinds of reasons, not just age. But at the end, it was largely about the fact that very few people She'd remembered survive. a world in which she had not been their sovereign. And so yeah. you are the holder. I mean, what a, what a horrible thing to be doomed to. You are the holder of nostalgia. You are the holder of uh, a romanticized past. You are the, the target for everything that we want to beat up and attack about that romanticized past. So there's a, there's a certain kind of symbolic quality that works both ways there. I think Old Deuteronomy captures some of that. We don't really want it. We're ready to move on. And yet we have a hard time just dismissing it and and wanting to, you know, like there is a um, there is a there's a sense of of love and adulation. And as you say, when it's well staged, it surprises you with how how meaningful and how moving it can be to encounter that thing. Yeah. And there is something, I think, very powerful in that hum- in that emotional reaction to I mean, what do we want to say? Authority, longevity, ven- you know, a, a world that maybe feels very foreign and yet, then it saunters in. You know, that, that's the phenomenon of old Deuteronomy, like, you know, walking across your path and you're like, oh, I can't believe that cat is still fucking alive. But <laughs> there he is. My God, yeah. the resiliency of that thing is powerful. It really yeah. is kind of, yeah, there's something very moving to me about that. Well, and what comes to my mind also as we talk about this is my experience of being, you know, dean of a cathedral for 25 years. And for the first about 17 struggling against all sorts of things, uh, knowing I was loved and integrating with the, with the community. In about the last five years, there was a different sort of way that I was regarded, partly because I was now the custodian of the story. Because 25 years, I'd been, you know, led the community through our response to 9-11 uh, through the disclosure around residential schools, there were so the, the human the, sexuality debate. The God, human yeah. sexuality debate, where I was a bit of a lightning rod internationally and so forth, and it was weird. In the last about five years of my incumbency, the deference and the respect that came my way, without having to do anything, it was it was kind of it, it wasn't great for the it was good for the ego, but not really good for the ego because it made becoming a has dean. Uh, somewhat, you know, people don't care anymore than I want to walk into a room. Right. Uh, they they um, venerate you and you actually sometimes that, want that was done. something different. Yeah. But, but, but I think there's maybe just to riff for one more minute on the whole, I think, important and sadly missing part in our culture, the role of elders, the which indigenous communities understand uh, deeply. Um, the elder within an indigenous community is given due respect, partly just kind of like what you were saying about Queen Elizabeth, 
not so much what they've done, but what they've lived through they survived. and witnessed. Yeah. They've survived and and becoming the teller of the story. Yeah. So the I think, holder of the story, I think that's a really beautiful way to think about. I mean, certainly the way that Deuteronomy functions in this thing, the way that clergy can function sometimes in congregations. When you have been around long enough to to hold a community story, articulate it back to them. I mean, we need that's I think that I think that's why societies need elders. We need people yes. who have been around long enough to be able to to hold that story, help us find our place in that story, even when the place we find in that story is kind of defining ourselves against them. I think that's often what happens to elders. Still, what an important psychological role that that plays um, to, yeah. to, to hold that larger narrative. Yeah. And Old Deuteronomy has a new role within the, the, the Jellicle Cat. The Jellicle Cat. Whereas, mm-hmm. whereas Gus the Cat at the theater door lives in, only in the past. Only in the past. Well, and so this actually, I think, bridges us to, I know the other thing that we want to talk about, you know, because we're, 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 we're itching up on Grizabella here, and this question of moments of happiness, right? In the second act of Cats, Old Deuteronomy, in some productions, who has sat on stage for the entire interval, right, kind of contemplating where I think we're meant to believe, like Moses on the mountain, uh, what has happened to Grizabella, and then begins a second act with this song that I didn't really even know that well, because I don't think it was on the American cast recording, but uh, riffing on a different Eliot poem, The Moments of Happiness. And that becomes, I think, kind of the big thematic question of the second act. I mean, the plot question is, which cat is going to ascend to the heavyside layer? Um, but the thematic question here is, how, what is a moment of happiness? What, like, what, how do you know when you are, when you are touching happiness? Right. You, you looked up yeah. the, the Eliot poem that this actually comes from, yeah. from for quartets, So it I think. comes from the four quartets, the dry selvages. Um, and the, the, the full uh, Eliot poem is the moments of happiness, not the sense of well-being, fruition, fulfillment, security or affection, or even a very good dinner, <laughs> but the sudden illumination. And then here's the big line. We had the experience, but missed the meaning. An approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form beyond any meaning we can assign to happiness. We had the experience, but missed the meaning. Yeah. I, and I think so much of postmodern life is about searching for the meaning of the experiences that we're having. The moments of happiness we had the experience but missed the meaning and approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form So is that is that why Gus doesn't get? I mean, one of the one of the questions I was I was you know part of it is um, in the you know in the 2020 film 
Um, it's Ian McKellen as Gus the Theater Cat, which, I mean, I don't love that film, but Ian McKellen in that role is, is I think, especially when he and Judy Dench, I mean, he and Deuteronomy, I think they're, the backstory is they used to be lovers. I mean, it's very clear that Judy Dench and Ian McKellen are playing two theater cats that used to have a thing. But she's she's in her basket, right? She even, she awkwardly lifts up her leg and licks her pussy at one point, which I think is a very strange thing for Judy Dench to do. But there she is in the basket, watching, you know, this relationship that has is probably, you know, 60, 70 years long, watching Gus sort of, you know, remember his glory days, right? I mean, you know, he yeah. the, the whole Gus is, I mean, and they're, you know, in the, in the film, they're putting all of that in Gus's mouth in the Broadway version. Another cat sings about Gus. It's a, it's a slightly different thing. But there again, like old Deuteronomy, you have a venerable actor playing a venerable actor, right? This is Elliot's tribute to the, you know, the the, the theater is certainly not what it was. I mean, Gus you know, sort of talks about, you know, my, my, my greatest, my greatest, my greatest role, fire four fiddle, the fiend of the fell, whoever, whoever the fuck that is. Um, but, you know, kind of reliving, reliving the glories of his past. But I think, I think, I mean, I don't, here again, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but Gus is entirely focused on the past, but not on the meaning of it, right? He's not able to move beyond um, reliving his glory days in a way that I think Grizabella then offers us a different way of engaging the memories right. of happiness, the memories of the past, that ultimately becomes her redemptive moment. Here, I mean, here we're, we're treating this as if it's a, you know, a theological treatise. It is not. It's about cats. But I do think it's interesting to kind of put Gus and Grizabella next to one another as these older, older cats who are, who are very much actively engaged in this process of memory. That's what her whole song is about. Um, memory and happiness. How do, you, how do you find the meaning of a moment of happiness? What, is that, what does that look like? And, and, and how does that change the moment? I mean, memory is such a, a slippy thing. You know, are you actually... And I think that's kind of what Ellie is identifying, right? Like, when we, when we find meaning in a, past, in a past moment, we are essentially recreating that moment, right? We're doing it kind of, you know, in, in the context of the generations, not just in the context of my life. So in some ways, there's, there's nothing stable about that, that meaning um, because it's, it's kind of based in something insubstantial, right? It, it may have very little reference to the actual moment of happiness itself. It's, it's finding a meaning in a, in a previous moment that I think is more about the present and the future, right? How, how do I find something in that, in that memory, in that moment, that's going to make sense of my life right now and that then will move me into, into the future? That will, and Gus, Gus isn't able to do that, right? He's kind of stuck. Then if someone will give him a toothful of gin, he will tell how he once played a part in East Lynn. At a Shakespeare performance, he once walked on hat, when some actor suggested the need for a cat. And I say now, these kittens, they do not get trained as we did in the days when Victoria reigned. They never get drilled in a regular troop, and they think they are smart just to jump through a hoop. And he says as he scratches himself with his claws, Well, the theater is certainly not what it was these modern productions are all very well but there's nothing to equal from what i hear tell that moment of mystery when i made history as fire for a fiddle, the fiend 
the end of his number, he kind of daughters off stage. And I think the I think the the what it is that Grisabella discovers is the importance of lament and and expression of grief, especially. And I'm also not a great fan of the film, but when Jennifer Hudson sings "Memory," it is a it it, it it's a grief song. It's a song of deep lament, getting in touch with with what's been lost. And I think the psychological wisdom here, and maybe spiritual wisdom, is without the without the grief, without really expressing what it is that has been lost, it's impossible to embrace the next level, the the heavy side layer in this case. And I think Gus gets lost in nostalgia, and I think the church. Um, and again, I don't want to make too much of all this, but I think the church, a lot of the conversations about the church are kind of like Gus the cat at the theater door, right? Uh, remembering the glory days, glory remembering days. what it used to be like, and but not taking the next step, which Grisabella takes, which is to sing your heart out about it and to weep for what's been lost so that you can be freed so to enter... Yeah, she does. She has that. I mean, you know, I, I think about that, the, the, you know, the, the, the big, the, the money notes, you know, like the, the big moment, the, the moment that if you go down YouTube uh, rabbit holes, you can watch, you know, about 20 different actresses doing these like four bars of memory and decide who, I mean, like, and, and, and I have very strong opinions. I've watched all of those takes multiple. I've watched you know, every actress I can find do touch me. It's so easy to leave me all alone with the memory of my days in the sun. It's just that it's when, you know, the music swells, it's the, it's the top belt note. Betty Buckley does it on the, you know, on the Tony Awards. And Betty Buckley's performance is much more, like, she's much more composed. She's much more cat-like. There's, a, you know, like, she she doesn't really collapse in grief. She sort of sits down, has a kind of a, and then, but her touch me is like her eyes are closed. She's reaching for something. As you say, Jennifer Hudson is, you know, like the snot is dripping down her face. It's yes. her, I think it's her Anne Hathaway, I dreamed a dream moment. She's, she's gotten for her Oscar. She never got it. Um, right. But it's, I mean, it's pure grief. It's a, it's a primal cry. Touch me. It's so easy to leave me all alone with the memory of my days in the sun. But if you touch me, you'll understand what happiness is. And then look, right? That's the key. Okay, a new day has begun, right? Like I'm ready now, or maybe I'm not ready, but the dawn is here. The night is over. My, my, the, the memory of that moment of happiness is fading from me. I have to figure out how to move into my into my life. And as you say, lament becomes such a right. Like that's grief. The memory is fading. Touch me. It's so easy to leave me. I was thinking of the resurrection account in John, mm-hmm. where Mary Magdalene in the garden reaches out to yeah. to touch the risen Christ, 
who says, "Do not touch don't me. touch me." Yeah. No, I think I think that's an interesting that's an interesting text to lay next to that one. Yeah. Yeah, there is some, it's, it's, it is, it's so about, I mean, and, and that's, I mean, Grizabella, the first time we see her in the, you know, like, no one will touch her, right? Like, she is, she's the pariah, she's skating on the edge of things, all the other cats are kind of hissing at her, like, stay away. She, I mean, you know, it's like, was she a prostitute? Like, that, I, I don't really want to go down, but, you know, the way that Elliot characterizes Mary cat, Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, and all of the references to Grizabella, you know, she was hanging around on Tottenham Court Road, and, you know, like, so she's, she's clearly a cat with a past, but now has become untouchable, right? No one will, no one will go near her. And that is, you know, it's like, it is the, it's the way that she articulates, I think her deepest longing, please somebody touch me. And as you say, right, like there is, there is a way in which, um, I mean, I don't know, it depends on how you stage it. Maybe Deuteronomy like takes her hand and leads her up into the heaviside layer. But there is this sense in which um, that's, that's her grief, that's her loss. And that's not necessarily what moves her forward. Um, There is, there is a sense of, of, the insubstantiability of what's happening with her. She, I mean, she's she's dying at, at one level, right? Like she's ascending into the heavy side layer. Um, so she is become. I mean, you know, it's like who knows who's going to touch her up in the heavy side layer. Whatever version of cat god is up there, I hope is going to. Yeah. Um, but but there is the sense that what she's what she's losing is her body. I think. Yeah, and I also think of the whole experience of widows and widowers who, after their beloveds have uh, have died. You can, and I've seen this just in pastoral ministry over decades, people begin to shrivel up. You could see because the touch that is so needed is no longer there. The holding each other in the night, uh, all those kinds of things that in a healthy long-term relationship just become second nature to me now, you know. <laughs> to to quote Henry like breathing Higgins out for a and moment, breathing in. <laughs> like breathing out and breathing in, and the importance of touch just to just to stay there, the importance of of certainly certainly touch from a human to a cat or one cat to another cat, just to go at a very kind of physical level. It when again going back to my bizarre days as a cat breeder, well they did the breeding, but. I'd come home some some night and there would be six or seven cats all uh, cuddled up sleeping together. And uh, the cats uh, who wanted me to touch them, to be stroked, to be held, presented themselves to me. I soon learned I did not approach the cat. The cats had to approach me. And sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. But you know when a cat wants to be touched, mm-hmm. that's a very intimate experience, mm-hmm. and and their purring begins, and mm-hmm. and uh, and I think this the Trevor Nunn song based out of this human need for touch, yeah. Uh, and then I think about no, I know I'm just free associating here, kind of like a Rorschach, and but maybe that's what maybe, maybe that's what the show is, is kind of a, <laughs> a Rorschach, a Rorschach you know, the life the lives of the untouchables that the church created because of its teaching about gender and sexuality just breaks my heart. I mean, I think of so many of the single adults I knew in my early days in ministry in the church who were probably gay, lesbian, or queer, or whatever, and who out of devotion and commitment to the life of the church, chose not to partner or only partner sexually in the most unhealthy ways. 
so when I, I I'm I'm imagining that that quick pastiche of the divas singing "Touch Me, Touch mm-hmm, Me, Touch." Mm-hmm. So uh, this this need, this human need, so primal, so important for our bodies to be touched. Yeah. You know, it's incarnational. You know, we come alive when we're touched. And and the different and then we can then I you know my mind goes into different ways of touch and obviously we're talking about loving touch about respectful touch. Um, yeah, well, and then I think often what happened. I mean, I you know I, I think of, I, I I I think you and I both have known a lot of Grizabellas in our time, right? Yeah. Those who those who for all kinds of reasons were deprived of the loving touch that they craved. I, I, I want to be really careful around this because, I mean, at one level, you know, Grizabella is not a sex worker. She's a cat who's lived a hard life. And yet the way the Elliot poem characterizes her, I think she is a stand-in for sex workers. So I think there's a little bit of a, um, of a morality kind of a, a sl- I mean, at one level, kind of a slut shaming here, but also, you know, like the, the message here, I think could be interpreted as when loving touch is deprived, the cat will turn to sex work. As a way of and and I think like that's actually I I don't love that I I think about you know I I also recognize what you're talking about right like those who in previous generations lived quote unquote celibate lives probably as queer people and and there's a piece of me that thinks yeah they they like that I that does do a kind of profound damage to the human body and soul when you are deprived of that kind of touch and there's also a piece of me that thinks like the human need for touch is way more resilient than that you know like. There's a piece of me that thinks just because we can't see the touching happening in the ways that we're used to looking for it, intimate partnerships, uh, socially sanctioned relationships. I mean, there's a, I don't know. There's a piece of me that wants to say like another way that you could another way that you could choose to perform "Touch Me, It's So Easy to Leave Me" is as a um, almost a cry of emancipation. And there's a piece of me that would love to see memory performed that way. Right? I am not. Um, I am not a figure of pity. I have been touched. I have known touch. I long, right? Like I, I am, of I am course. working my memories. Like I still long for it. But do not pity me. There's, I mean, there's a piece of me that wants to, you know, to hear. I mean, I was actually when I and there are actors. Who, I think about Mamie Parrish, who's my favorite, uh, my favorite Grizabella. There, she, she's the only actress I've ever heard who performs that entire four-bar thing in one breath. Her rendition of it, in my in my memory of it, is almost. Um, I mean, part of this is the way the music works, right? Like it's such a big moment in that song, so it can be a primal cry of grief as Jennifer Hudson performs it. I think it can also be um, a cry of, of liberation. Of, of liberation, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I I am worth something. I am not. Uh, I am not. I am not to done. I'm not dead. I'm yeah. not to be pitied. Yeah, I'm not which to I mean, be so there, if you're right, like I mean, there's a piece of me that wants to say like that's what that's what gets Grizabella the you know that's what makes her the jellical choice. Um, yeah, she she claims her voice and her authority and her identity. She claims her past and her future and her present. Uh, and then Old Deuteronomy like you know holds out his hands to her. Okay, like come to the heavy okay, side. Let's there, go. Girl. Like yeah, you finally you finally got it. You're not a victim. 
and we get as theologically it should be anyway the ascension and resurrection yeah. rolled into one as as through hydraulics which in the early <laughs> 80s was a big moment a big deal uh, the a tire, big tire <laughs> moves up into the sky and the audience is <laughs> odd that yep. this is all going on and you know the smoke machines are working overtime uh-huh. um and the, well, they the all, show well, they is all done they're hymns to the mystical divinity of unashamed felinity. Whatever yeah, that's yeah, about. A, whatever that means. And the curtain rings down and the audience goes crazy. The audience goes home. It's actually kind of an interesting lyric. It, it gets it gets repeated at the end of this kind of the, the, the tire rising moment. But it's the it's actually it's the it's the bit of choral writing in this thing. Andrew Lee Weber writes basically Anglican choral music. Um, it's when the, all the cats sing in four part harmony. Oh, mystical divinity of unashamed felinity, round the cathedral rang vivat. That's the lyric of that thing. Which is such an interesting lyric to me. I mean, it it is liturgical, right? Um, it's yeah. it's churchy. It's naming the cathedral. It's naming the I guess these cats, you know, like surrounding St. Paul's or something like that, like scream howling, uh, making well, their music. And, and vivat is what's sung at the coronation of yep. a monarch, right? Yep. Yep. It's the uh, so old Deuteronomy is kind of Queen Elizabeth, you yep. know. Vivat Regina. Vivat Regina. Uh, I think that's exactly Vivat the resonance we're meant to hear there. Yeah, yeah. and that's and it's it's a, it is. They're they're singing their hymn of triumph, right? This is the cat yeah. who is uh, who is being enthroned, if you like. Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting. <laughs> it's a really interesting liturgical moment in this very silly show. So Nathan, we were actually sort of not looking forward to talking about cats because we weren't sure we. Had... Oh, I was looking forward to it. I love. Cats. Oh, okay. I yeah. I love cats. I mean, I I don't always like cats. I think it's so strange, and sometimes I think it's really dumb. But I do like, I mean, maybe it's because I grew up with it as a, you know, it's like I danced around the living room when I was a kid to that. You know, it's like that music has a hold over me. I don't know that I think it's good, but I really love that show. I, I do yeah. really, I really, there's something about cats that I, I, I mean, I'm a cat lover, so of course I love cats. Yeah, it is, it's a, it's a show that I have a very soft spot for. Um, and, and as we've talked about it, like, you know, I, here again, you know, it's like, you can, you can do a lot of, you can do a lot theologically, thematically with cats. At the end of the day, it's about fucking cats, you know, it's like, it's, cats. and that's why I think it works. I think, I think the, the movie for me doesn't work because I think Tom Hooper is trying to take this material too seriously and it just doesn't bear up. It's not, um, it is not a think piece. It's a, it's a dance show. And I think when cats forgets that it's first and foremost, a dance show, it really loses something. Um, it's fun. It's infectious. It's you know, it's a it's a cohesive world. And at the end of the day, it's yeah, it's a bunch of little nonsense ditties about cats. I mean, what's not to love? And it's really the first mega musical. Yeah, it's a spectacle. Amazing. It's yeah. a spectacle. Is it Phantom that we look at next? I think so. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay. okay. I'm, ex- I'm excited about that one too. <laughs> All right. Until next time. Until next time. The Gospel of Musical Theatre is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. 
Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.